How y'all doing uh, today? Y'all all right? Good, good, good. Are you having a good time so far? Were you blessed by the word through J.D. Greer? Let's give God a hand praise for him. Let's give God a hand praise for him. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Thank you for that challenge, brother. Um, I'm honored to be here and thankful for the opportunity uh, to speak for this event. Thank you for all the pastors, all the pastors that put this together. Would y'all stand real quick so we can just big y'all up real quick? Are y'all in the room? All the pastors and churches that put this together? No? None of them are in the room? Okay, one. Wow, amen. Let's thank God for the churches that came together uh, to put this together. We um, know that it takes a lot to get the church together. It should be very easy, um, but it's a wonderful thing that when churches in an area aren't informationally and uh, contextually and geographically territorial, but willing to come together for the sake of the gospel to provide an opportunity for this time for us to share with one another and deepen our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and deepen our commitment to his gospel. So honored to be here. Um, if you will, um, I want to dig right in and maximize the time that the Lord has given us. Uh, turn with me, if you don't mind, to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. Leviticus um, chapter 19, verses 19, verses 9 through 18. I won't read all of it. If you don't mind, I'm an old school dude a little bit. If you don't mind standing while I read this, that'll be great. If you don't mind, I like to do a little bit of old school respect for God's word. Somebody should have said amen right there. Amen. amen. Verse 9, right? Verse 9. Here we go. Here we go. This is good stuff for our soul. Let's start in verse 9. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker you shall, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your neighbor, your brother, in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I've been given the task in this time that we have together to talk about God's love for the world. Let's go before him one more time. God, we can't pray enough. We're in desperate need of you, and I'm in desperate need of you. I'm not here for anything else but for your name. And so, mighty one, will you roll through here with might and clarity so this 
Wouldn't just another be a message that someone just heard and said it was a good word or a bad word and walked away, but God made this be transformative for each and every one of us to love you more and to see the glory of Christ more eminently emanate from my souls. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer and whom we trust. And help us not to be hearers of the word, merely deceiving ourselves, but help us to be effectual doers, O oh God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody agree with that? Say it. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. You may be seated. I know you're looking at me and wondering, why in the world did you read from the book of Leviticus to talk to us during this time? Um, interestingly enough, um, I've been preaching enough from God's word and reading in God's word enough to know that there is a word from every passage in the Bible for God's people. Um, interestingly enough, as we dive into this idea that we're talking about God's love for the world, um, Oprah Winfrey has a master class that she puts on. And this master class is to grab people from different sectors of life and different walks of life who in many people's mind are a master at something in particular. And what she does or she did while doing these episodes is she would bring them on her show and begin to ask them particular systemic questions that help frame and help develop them into being a master in the particular craft that they are in. And then she would also engage them about transcendent things that their particular craft uh, inexplicably or inferentially or involuntarily got done beyond what they expected. And so one of the master classes, which is one of the most famous master classes that she did was she did with an artist. I don't know if you know who he is, but his name is Jay-Z. And Jay-Z, uh, she began to interview Jay-Z and walk through everything from his fatherlessness all the way up to the greatness of his success. But a part of the interview in the master's class, this particular episode, she asked him a particular question and he began to walk through it as she began to talk to him about race. And as she began to ask him about this idea of race and racism in th this here, what I would call, as some would call, yet to be United States, he begins to walk through something in particular. And what he says in the response really is mind-boggling and beautifully convicting for us as believers. He says he believes that hip-hop has done more for racial relations than any other entity or person Say, save Martin Luther King, but for the most part, he believes that race relations has been more fixed or engaged or gaps closed because of the impact of hip-hop culture. Um, and because of hip-hop culture, he's saying, man, th th there have been so many people who wouldn't go to the club together that would hang out together cross-ethnically because this particular song is on. I mean, and he begins to uh, lay these things out. And I even saw in the National Geographic article from a few years back where people already, all the way from the blocks of the boardroom are into this particular cultural and musical phenomenon that was able to bring people together. And as I was, as I was beginning to listen to Jay-Z talk, it made me begin to think about the role and commitment 
of the church. This should not be a reality of the fact that a musical form of a cultural form would do more for bridging gaps between people than anything but the church. The church of God and the people of God through the gospel of God with Christ at the center and with the blowing might of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the great gap bring togetherer, if you will. And so in this reality, we are called by um, God through the might of the Lord Jesus Christ as the church to be the most powerful entity that brings things together. I'll talk about it tomorrow. Things that shouldn't be together, bringing them together. And so we come to a passage which I think is beautifully represented. Let me know if I need to get that other mic. Um, This is beautifully representative of, I believe, not just what was supposed to be and was abolished, but Christ helps us to fully fulfill the beauty of what we're going to see in this passage as a word for the people of God of all times. If you look in the first part of this passage, let's look at it together. And in this passage, we see the Lord says through Isaiah, I mean, through um, uh, Moses, he says in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What's interesting about this passage is the overarching view of this passage and of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of God emanating through the holiness of God's people. In other words, um, the people of God were supposed to, in their commitment of being submissive and having had been redeemed and having had been transformed by God through God bringing them out of Egypt, pointing ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one that would bring each one of us spiritually out of the Egypt of our circumstances, the Egypt of our slavery and the Egypt of our challenges. Um, Leviticus, if you will, is, is, is a different book than Genesis. This Genesis was built to point to the patriarchal beauty of those who would set the way for us, pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ who would. Exodus is about God delivering God's people um, from the, 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 the challenges of Pharaoh and slavery out and taking them into the promised land. Numbers was about the meandering direction that the people of God would ultimately have because of their lack of submission to him in taking them into the promised land. But Jesus ultimately would be the one who was the best GPS on the planet to help us not to waste our time getting to where God wants us to be. But Jesus expediently moves us quickly towards where we're supposed to go by getting us in God's presence based on our belief in him by grace alone, through faith alone, and through him alone. And Deuteronomy, of course, is a restatement of the law, but Leviticus is really the ethics of the law, the ethics of the kingdom. In other words, what were the people of God supposed to act like towards God? God, act like towards each other, and act like towards those who don't know Yahweh or the living God. So Leviticus was to meticulously help God's people to really functionally live out their role of what Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 5, that we are the light of the world. The people of God were supposed to be the light of the world that shines out the eminence and the preeminence of the glory of Yahweh, ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. And so this passage in Leviticus is beautiful. And the reason why it is beautiful is because it is going to give ethics. Somebody say ethics. It's giving ethics of what kingdom ethics are always supposed to be 
for God's people in every single area of their life. And so in this message, I got one point. I got a few points for you. First point, number one, number one, number one in light of this reality of God's love for the world. Number one, the church's witness. <coughs> the church's witness is a display of God's holiness to one another and to the world. The church's witness is a display of God's holiness to one another and the world. What, 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 what is about to be talked about here in this passage is not what makes us holy. In other words, believers are supposed to live in light of an outpouring of the holiness that God has already imputed to us through Christ. So for the believer looking back in Leviticus, we know that we've been saved by grace alone through faith alone in what Christ has done for us. And in light of what he's done for us, we're imputed with his holiness and thereby being imputed with his holiness, boom, now we're able to, 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 to extrinsically live out what's been intrinsically placed inside of us. And so we come here to these verses and as we begin to look at how Moses began to speak to the congregation, I love this word holy. And the word holy here in this passage is the word which means it's kadosh. Somebody say kadosh. That seemed like somebody got punched in the face with something. It's like a kadosh. Like a, that's like old school Batman. Kadosh type. Anyway, maybe the work in Philly. Um, <clears throat> so what's interesting about this word kadosh is in its lexical form, it means to cut. Somebody say cut. Now, what's beautiful about this idea of cut is, is it means that something was a part of something larger and connected to it. However, it got cut out, and when it got cut from that particular thing, it's now distinct from what it was connected to. Now it's connected to the one who cut him or her out. The church is like that. We are distinct in the fact that in Christ, God has in his holiness cut us out and set us aside from the general bunch of everything to be a unique piece of what we're supposed to do in emanating our cutness in the light of our cutness over to those who we got cut away from. Let me see if I can make it plain. I can't afford this, but I, I hear about people that talk about getting stuff made, coals made, dudes getting suits made and all them different types of things. And so, man, you go in, I went in the place, and I looked at it. You could pull out a nice, beautiful piece of fabric, and they look at it and hold it all out. You know, whether it's Harris tweed or Dungle tweed or, you know, some, some, of, them, some of them things, right? And, and you know, I, I can't name the rest of them. That's all I can come up with for the message. Um, and so, and so, and so they, they're all there, and you lay it out, and it's on the rolly thingy in my jiggy, and they roll it out, and the thing in my jiggy come out real nice, and, and the fabric is looking beautiful. And you tell them what you want, and they measure you all up, wacka, 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 get you all straight. You're like, boom, I'm good. Then they, they, then, they, then they cut out from that bigger piece of the roll enough to make what's being fitted for someone. And when that thing is cut out, it's cut out and then it's shaped into what it's supposed to be in order to be worn, to be shown off. And if you put that outfit next to the fabric, you wouldn't recognize the difference between the two. Maybe some patterns, but the distinctiveness of being formed and changed and shaped has totally made it distinct from what it was cut from. That's what the church is. The church in God's holiness is a uniquely handmade fabric from heaven 
that God has called to be cut and set aside and uniquely tailored towards his heart, uniquely tailored towards his mind, uniquely tailored towards his passions, uniquely tailored towards every single thing that the living God would have us to be tailored towards, tailored towards love, tailored towards commitment, tailored towards long-suffering, tailored towards uh, glorifying him in every single area of your life. I want to ask you one question. How does your outfit, your soul outfit look in relation to its preeminent tailoring based on Christ? Christ saving you. God has called us as we be, get conformed into his image to display this. And as he sets the tone in verse 2 to help lay out <coughs> and lay the glorious foundation for the fact that God says, be holy for I'm holy. It's impossible to do it without him. So you need God to make you holy. Once he makes you holy, he demands the holiness positionally and practically and progressively. And so here we go. And so as he begins to walk through this, brings me to my next point, which brings me to the next set of verses. Next point is love God, love people, and love the non-believer. Love God, love people, and love the non-believer. Look at what it says in these verses. Verse 9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This is unbelievable gospel information right here. This is beautiful. So what's happening here is God would bless the people of God once they would get into the promised land. And everybody was going to have a booming field of nice harvesting Love that God gave to him. And it was going to be beautiful. Say, you, everybody from this front row right here, all the way to the back is my harvest. All the way, and over there, all the chairs. This is my, this is my, this is my situation right here, right? Boom, this is my garden, and this is my crib. This is my house, right? This is my house. Here go my couch, everything. Boom, it's right here. I'm sitting here, and that's a window. So I got the nice window situation. So I'm on my chillage ministry, right? So I'm sitting back watching my 52-inch, so 60-inch television screen, uh, four, uh, four HD and all that ultimate stuff they got. I don't even know what all of it is now, but I got my, my remote control in my hand. Boom. I'm looking. I'm like, dang, look at that. <laughs> look at that. Boom. Who, who outside? Who out in my yard? What Israel was supposed to do is during harvest time. They were supposed to leave the edges ungleaned. And the reason why is they were supposed to build a culture of generosity. And in this culture of generosity, God wanted them to build common ground with lost people. Let's, let's, let's see how we can make this look. So there's some people over there, they're walking past, 
and they, they got some hobo stuff on, and they, like, like you know, I know y'all got a, I grew up in D.C., so we got a lot of homelessness there, and I see it's a lot here in Hawaii, and so they're pushing their basket along. And you know the dude hungry, the dude say, yo, you got a dollar? They said, nah, man, I don't have no denarii today, but guess what? Man, man, up into this pole right here, these poles right here, man, do you. Get as much to eat as you want. Dude gonna be like, word? Be like, yeah, get as much to eat as you want. You talking about from this pole all the way to the edge, I can get my eat on. Yep, get your eat on, bro. What happens? As a matter of fact, me and my sons, we're coming out, and we'll be gleaning in here. Um, man, we, we, you make it come over for dinner. We can chop it up, but you, you grab that stuff, man. I got a pond down there. You can go fishing that. We can show some love. We can fillet ministry, have some grillage. It's going to be on. He's going to be like, it's like that? Oh, it's like that. Boom. So, so all of a sudden, you gleaning, your kids out there <laughs> running around, having a good time. Get over here. Stop doing that. And this, all of this interaction, right? Right? Then in the middle of that, some other dudes come past. He's like, and some ladies come past. He's like, yo, come here. Like what? Man, I don't know what's good with these people, but they said anybody can eat from that wall to the back. They're like, what? <laughs> then they call their cousins, then all of these folk come from nowhere, and all of them now over there, and they're all gleaning. And they're like, man, you're going to be poor. No, I'm not, because, and then they said, why are you doing this? That's where the common ground begins. Then you can get to tell them, you know why I do this? Because I serve the Lord Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth. And surely he has blessed me with this. And he has commanded us that we not glean the edges of our fields so that whether someone's, and I'm not trying to put you down, please don't hear me putting you down, but someone that doesn't have a lot or our Bible would say poor, um, for the single mom, widow, um, I, you know, that's we, God has built into sort of our DNA this thing where it's called the Levirate Law. Matter of fact, it was a guy named Jabez, and he was called not to, he actually asked God to increase his territory, but this, some people write books on thinking it's for them to get more. But <laughs> to be honest, the prayer was really more about the extension of his ability to be missional. And if God extended his territory, that means it extended his ability to be a blessing to others. And so I'm sitting here, and God sent you here, and I want to talk to you about him. I want to talk to you about my commitment to him and our commitment to him. And all of a sudden, (coughs) these people begin to hang around Israel because of Israel's generosity, because of Israel's commitment to Yahweh. And they begin over the years to build culture with other nations where they know that during the fall and spring harvest, everything's free at certain points. And what that begins to do is it begins to build a culture where people begin to vulturize around God's people, if you will, to be able to eat have their needs met and be engaged by kingdom ethics. The church, we have created ourselves in America as an off-limits community. 
The only time they hear about or hear from us is when we're in a presidential debate or something else is going on. But is our incarnation loud enough when there is no media frenzy around? See, here in this passage, (coughs) there was the ongoing disposition to over and over and over and over again build a cultural reputation based on nearness to God and us waving the aroma of Christ to the nations and to lost people. Does your church, no matter how large, no matter how small, your lives, your marriages, your singleness, your femininity, your masculinity, your parenting, does it wave the aroma of the openness of the gospel? Does it wave this aroma of building a culture of free enterprise, common ground of generosity that makes people look into and take down their God. When you're blessing people, it's hard for them to cuss you out. It's hard for them to write a crazy blog about you. It's, it's hard for them to make a hate Facebook page about you. When your disposition is the holiness of the living one and the beauty of this, they're not supposed to glean these edges. And even goes further in laying these things out and practically not only talking about this idea of edge gleaning, if you will. He goes even into harder stuff. And some of the hardest stuff, I believe, in this passage is practically foretellingly prophetic to what we're dealing with in our culture today. Look at what he says and he begins to walk through as he begins to talk about this reality of the sojourner. As he talks about the sojourner, look, look, look at this. He begins to go down and he begins to point them more deeply to what they need to do. So we must be challenged on how we deal with one another. Look at what it says. He begins talking about not stealing from one another. In verse 11, you should not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, utilizing God's name as a way to cover up your sin. And so profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. He keeps saying that. He keeps saying, I am Yahweh. Why does he keep saying that? The reason why he keeps saying that is because he wants his people to know, don't forget the covenant. Don't forget that I have a relationship with you. Don't don't forget that we're connected. It's not him just saying he's God. He said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping one that's connected himself to you, and you have connected yourself to me by faith. In light of that reality, function like you're connected to me. I like that. Function like you know me. I remember when I was little, man, and my dad, I would go out in the street, and my dad would be talking to me, and I'd say, Dad, can I go so-and-so and such and such? He's like, no, you ain't going. And I'd be like, well, Dad, the kids down the street, they get to go places. They get to do things. They get to have fun. They get to enjoy. Why can't? He said, well, they don't live in my house. <laughs> in other words, <clears throat> and he would say, you have my name. They don't have my name. And because they don't have my name, I don't have jurisdiction to function with them. But because of your relationship with me, you're my jurisdiction. You represent me. So he goes down further, and he gets into some hard stuff. 
He says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the death or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. We just got finished doing a series called the Woke Church Series. And in this series, we have been dealing with the racial injustices in our country. Because I believe that by and large, evangelical Christians and the gospel-centered community have been voiceless functionally in these areas. And it's so bad and so broken that many don't take us seriously because we have functionally lacked a commitment to be a unified light to these issues in our country. And in light of the, the lack of a unified light, it has pushed back the disposition of what God wants us to do in relationing to build common ground with people who we would be able to build common ground with to be able to engage and repent of the things that we need to repent of and challenge the things. I believe the issue of our day, the issue of our day that we need, every issue that comes up needs a gospel voice to it. Every issue, whenever the church is silent on anything that the culture is angry about, and hateful about, and speak against the church about. And if we continue to have a pathetic voice versus a prophetic voice, I would say that biblically, based on the law, and don't tell me Jesus Christ already fulfilled it, so I don't have to deal with this stuff. No, this is not merely the, 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 the civic or the ceremonial. This is the moral, uh, moral civic law, if you will. It's married together, and therefore, it demands, the gospel demands that the church says something. And, and, and if the church not just say something, but say what the Bible says about the encroachment upon those who have no voice. It was interesting. We were reading through Proverbs 31 as a church, and I'm going through this passage, and, 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 the, and the ladies were really excited. Oh, he about to talk about some stuff on some womanhood. We about to be so excited. Oh, my goodness, it's going to be great, right? They was real happy. I said, we're not starting at verse 10. We're starting at verses 8 and 9. They're like, what's in 8 and 9? Right? We began talking about having a voice for the voiceless. Lemuel's mom taught him how to be a king and use his privilege for those who had no privilege. How do we do that? How do we apply? I know we got real quiet on that part. But how do we begin to think through these things in relation to the beauty of what the Word of God teaches us to do? How do we teach people not to glorify their victimization, yet be able to have community lament between those in privileged positions, those who are in non-privileged positions, coming together and hear one another's story? This, the beauty of this passage is it's relational. Sometimes when we look at the law, I get scared because many of us view the law as this standoffish you know, look at the hand because you don't understand type of thing. No, the law is a relational. This here is relational, communal, missional, evangelistic, common groundish. 
These are principles that can be placed into what the North African theologian Tertullian called, he coined it that, the, the Sermon on the Mount, if you will. And the beauty of this is it is broken our hearts here in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, it broke our hearts, and we started making some moves <clears throat> towards beginning to build our church around the need <coughs> to utilize the gospel as a means by the power of the Spirit to be a light to our city. You have to understand where I am. We are in a community with 90% single-parent homes, okay? South of us is being fully gentrified, million-dollar homes there, and then ethnic minorities, Latinos, African-Americans are being pushed to the edges and around, it, around in the middle is a school. The gentrification is non Long-time residents, most abortions cross ethnically in our region and area, most pregnancies, 90% of them in an abortion. And so we're in this area, and we see the school of prison pipeline. Our, our, in, our, in, our, in our neighborhood and in our city, in the state of Pennsylvania, the, for Philadelphia, they took away, listen, they took away $400 million from schools, closed 27 schools in the city, displaced 1,200 employees, and then gave 800 million towards building prisons. So what, what does the church have to say about the fact that we're going to take away from your education, but now we're going to build more places to put you because we're going to molest your community into now being a functionally dysfunctional place that will prepare a prison for you, but we won't prepare a school for you. What does the church have to say about that? And how do we begin to engage? And so we began building teams of people in our church to begin engaging and lovingly dealing with these issues of justice. And I know Hawaii got its issues too, because I don't think the people here were excited about becoming American at one point. <laughs> Only the Hawaiians said amen on that part, and the Samoans, <laughs> amen. And so one of the things that we began to do is we began to begin developing multi-ethnic teams. And our people in there, 60% of our congregation has advanced degrees. Biochemists, doctors, lawyers, people who grew up in the hood that God raised up, strengthened them, cross-ethnically, Latinos, Africans, whites. And now we have our white brothers and sisters saying, I want to lever leverage my privilege for the broken. I love it. I just go crazy. I love it. And guess what? Then we have some people walk out, and he's like, amen, God bless you. There's another church down the street that'll bless you with your comfort zone. But if you want to get out of your comfort zone to be a light to the world, and us, and don't, get in, don't look at me with the social gospel eyes. If you want, okay, let's give you a quick biblical theology. I promise I'll be out your way. Quick biblical theology. Over in Titus chapter 3, everybody goes there for regeneration of the fact that the power of the Spirit acts upon us to be born again. Verses 4 through 7 is about regeneration. But that's being written there to point to verses 1 and 2 and, and verse 14. Verse 1 says, serve your city. Don't forget that you were a fool, and now stop. Show, it does. And then it says, <laughs> then show off the fact that you're no longer a fool by being a philanthropist. Because God's a philanthropist, the ultimate philanthropist. And the philanthropist there points to the fact that God loves us so much, even though we were messed up, tore from the floor up, and not in anywhere able to save ourselves, we were totally depraved and jacked up. 
He sent Jesus. He came to die. Grace of God appeared. Ding. He came, died on the cross, got up from the grave. Boom. Saved us all power in his hand. Now he says in verse 14, teach our people, based on that, to learn, to meet pressing needs in order that they may not be found unfruitful. No church with a gospel as powerful as that should be unfruitful. We have too much might behind us. We have too much glory of God. It's one thing to have a glory of God doctrine. It's one thing to have a gospel-centered doctrine. Holy Ghost doctrine. Then we look at our neighborhoods. We look at the reflection of the churches in our city. Do we see the might of that in him piercing through the brokenness of injustices in our cities? So I believe this is our issue to deal with. That's why we plant eight churches in Africa. Right now, an inner city church. I want our church not to be the church that always had its hands out to get money. We wanted to build in such a way we gave away stuff. We give away people, money. And God always replenishes. Somehow, we planted a church in Camden. Planted a church in South Central LA. Bedford Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York. Bought the plant in Wilmington, Delaware. Baltimore. Planted a church in Germantown section of our city. <coughs> and we particularly choose places where nobody wants to go, but has great opportunity for gospel fruit. And am I saying be like me? No. And we're not perfect. I'm going to tell you right now, having a multi-ethnic inner city church with all them different types of people in it, with my big head as the pastor is a mess. <laughs> That's why we need the redeeming power of the gospel to help us. And I'm saying this, is you're never going to organize mess away. Some of you are so, like, anal <laughs> that you want to have everything right before you make a move. That, if that was this Bible, the people, listen, the people in the Hall of Faith were crazy. <laughs> I mean, if Samson makes it in here, <laughs> he's going to be, like, in heaven. You and I got a chance. <laughs> So what am I saying? Leviticus points us to Jesus. She said, you've searched the scriptures for you thinking them, find eternal life. They all speak of me. Jesus doesn't go to fixed up places where, the, where it looks like it's on the rise. He goes to the place where there's brokenness. Where, where's God? Listen, this is the way God likes to emanate light from. Places and situations, listen, that shouldn't be lit. And when God lights those places, and when God lights those places up with the glory of the gospel, people are wondering, how in the world did that happen? I remember when people thought we was crazy because we was going into the Badlands. We planted a guy, Doug Logan, who was here months ago in Camden, New Jersey. People are like, is he crazy? That place got the worst city in America five years in a row. There are no high-rises being built there, dog. No, it's not. But now that you look there, you see God moving in by faith and strength. That church, he has a relationship with the mayor. And the mayor, he's now on the mayor's council. Now they're building a relationship. And now he is talking to her about ways in which the gospel, he doesn't say that to her. Like, the gospel, he didn't say that. <laughs> but what he does is talk in glorious code and engage her behind closed doors about the gospel. And guess what? 
She wants to implement those plans to help that city to be transformed. What am I saying this for? Man, what are we afraid of? What are we, the worst can happen to us is we get persecuted, but that's supposed to happen. You can't legislate away our persecution, family. We have to be committed to being a light, no matter what. I had a whole bunch of other stuff to say, but I'm done. <laughs> Father, your might is great. And you're greatly to be praised. God, break through and help the church to become a community that deals with what we don't want to deal with so that we can grow and so that we can be built and so that you can show off and emanate the glorious majesty of your spirit to the world, to lost people, to broken people. And may it be no different here May you shine in the darkness of this paradise, this beautiful place. Yet I've been hearing from the islanders that there's darkness here that needs the piercing might of the gospel. Pierce through, do work, change lives through the church saying, I believe the gospel enough to do things that I don't feel like doing because it's a part of the thing that's closest to your heart. And this doesn't save me. It's an outgrowth of the fact that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.